0: Okay, so since it's been three weeks since I was in the pulpit, I need a a quick little refresher on where we uh, have been and where we're going. I said a few weeks ago that Isaiah chapter 13, so we're in an Isaiah message series. We're reading through the whole book. It was going to take us all the way up to Christmas, but uh, I missed two weeks, so it might be a little bit longer than that. Um, I'm a little frustrated about that because I've got, man, I got everything on on the right time. And when we get to the end of Isaiah, it's going to be Advent. We're going to be talking about the New Kingdom, and it was going to be great. And now I'm two weeks behind. And I was venting to my wife about this, and she said, "You know, you should just do, uh, pull pull like a two a day, a couple Sundays. Just like come in, do church, everyone go to lunch, and then we come back and do church again." (laughs) Some of you like, don't joke. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll figure out how we're gonna get through it. But Isaiah 13 through, chapter 13 through chapter 23 is a series of oracles against the, nation, against the nations, the nations surrounding Israel at the time. And an oracle is essentially what God says about a matter. What he says is this is what's gonna happen, this is the future of, uh, of your, uh, th- this is what's gonna happen in the future, this is, this is your destiny. I mean, you can't change it uh, because I've decreed it. And so when God says to Babylon, you're done. You're going to be a, you're going to be a wasteland. The, the, the city that was uh, home to beautiful tapestry and, and knowledge and wisdom that the nation's just, just, just fawned over like, oh, Babylon is the great. It's going to be, it's going to be buried under sand in the desert. Nobody's even going to know where it is. There's nothing you can do about it because I've decreed that this is your future because you need to be judged for the unrighteousness that you lived with. So Isaiah is standing up and he's giving oracles against all the nations. But the reason why he's giving these oracles is because a few chapters previous, the nation of, so Israel was split at the time. There was Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel in the north had aligned with this nation, Syria, and they were going to come down and go to war against Judah. And the king at the time, Ahaz, he's like, I don't know what to do. How do I fight against this two-nation army? And Isaiah goes to him and says, here's what the Lord said about the matter. Don't do anything. Just sit still. Don't do anything because the Lord is going to fight on your behalf, and he's going to wipe out the northern kingdom and and Syria, and they're going to be gone. And and, and less time than it takes for a child to grow up, these nations are going to be gone. So stop being afraid, and just don't do anything. What does Ahaz do? He says, I'm going to go do something. So he goes to Assyria, and he forms an alliance with Assyria. So essentially, God said, Ahaz, you're going to take a test. And the test is, Will you trust me? And Ahaz failed the test. So for 13 through 23, for 10 chapters, what Isaiah is standing up and doing, giving oracles against the nation, is he's saying to the people of Israel, do not trust foreign nations. And Israel's like, well, you don't understand, like Assyria's, they're coming for us. We made an alliance with them and now they're turning on us and we've got Israel and Syria and we've got all these nations that are, that are gunning for us. They're on the hills, I can see them, I can hear their foot, you know, they're stomping, I can hear their war drums. They're, they're coming, they're at the door, what do we do? We, we, maybe we should go form an alliance with like the Moabites or maybe we should like go and see if the Egyptians can come and help us. And is like, no, 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 don't do any of that. Do not form alliances with foreign nations. So Isaiah says, through a series of oracles, judgments against the nations, I'm gonna take all of you guys to school. I'm gonna teach you, when you say, maybe we should trust these guys, I'm gonna say, no, 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 don't trust them, and here's the reason why. Well, okay, well then, what, what we should trust these guys. No, no, don't trust those guys, because they're under God's judgment too. So we've got these series of oracles that runs 10 chapters, and it's essentially Isaiah saying the same thing over and over and over again. Do not trust these foreign nations. Well, what about Assyria? What about Babylon? What about uh, Philistia? What about uh, Cush? What about Egypt? No, don't trust any of them. Trust God. That's the message over the next 10 chapters. We started in 13, we're halfway through into 14. Now I mentioned when I started three weeks ago uh, when we did the uh, oracle against Babylon in chapter 13, that I'm viewing the application of these oracles for us as the church as a call to holiness. If God is this serious about judging the nations for their sin, then we should be equally as serious about getting the sin and the garbage and the temptation to trust foreign things of this world out of our own lives. And so what Isaiah is saying to Israel, but also to the church, is that trusting the world to accomplish God's plans is foolish. Here's the thing. God's plan for eternity is that one day we will hit a point where there's no more sickness and there's no more death and the world has been redeemed and the weather is perfect and all things are right with the world. That's his plan, and he will accomplish that plan through his ways. Now, the world wants some of those things, too. How do we make it so that mankind can live forever? How do we fix climate change? How do we address these issues with pandemics and sicknesses? How do we fix the issues of the day? The answer that the world would present is we we, we go to the world, we go to experts. Mankind can solve the great issues of our day. So let's use their ways to get to the place that God wants us to be. And Isaiah says that's foolishness. It was foolishness for Israel to think that way and it's foolishness for the church to think that way. You cannot accomplish God's plans using man's ways. End of story. That's the message of Isaiah. Now what is God's ways? That's what these oracles are about. Do not trust the nations, trust God. Do not trust the world's ways to accomplish his plans and do not look to the world's systems for comfort or for security or for identity. Now, as we go through these nations, we're gonna be talking about Assyria, Babylon, Moabites, Philistines. Each one of these nations were marked by something specific that I think will help us make an application. Because today, the temptation for the people in the church is not to go and trust Assyria. But Assyria was a representation of the power that the world has and offers to people, and so the temptation that the church has is not to trust Assyria. The temptation that the world has is to trust the power that the world offers you to accomplish God's plans. Look how much power and money that we've amassed. How are you gonna go against this system? So as we dissect each of the nations, we're gonna see what marked the nations And we're gonna see how that parallels to the temptation that we have because here's the issue that we have. Israel is struggling. Should we trust these nations for our security? And the church is struggling. Should we trust this power struggle? Should we trust this technology in order to grow and further our church? Is this what we should throw ourselves behind? Should we trust the ancient ways, like the Egyptians had their gods? Should, should we trust the, what the, 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 the wisdom of the world and what they have to offer? Should we trust that this book that was just written on issues of race and culture and gender, should we trust this thing to inform us on how we're supposed to see the world when it comes to mankind? No, you do not trust the world's ways to accomplish God's plans. You don't look to the world to give you security or give you identity. You already have security in him. You already have identity in him. What you need to do is to read this and you need to believe it and trust it. There is not some hidden knowledge out there somewhere that somebody hasn't dug up yet or somebody just wrote a book about that is just, oh man, if we could just grab a hold of this, everything in our world and in our churches would just change. This is the new strategy for 2021. If we're going to save the churches, people leaving in mass, this is how we do it. No, no, no. There's only one way that's ever worked and there's only one way that will continue to work and that is to preach what he told us to preach. It is to live what he told us to live. And that's Isaiah's message. Trust the Lord. Don't trust this world. Why don't you trust this world? Because this world is under God's judgment and they're gonna be punished for their ways. But also don't trust this world because when God's plan is fully developed, most of the world, they will be bowing down at the feet of Jesus anyway. So why would you trust what they have to say when they're gonna be coming to you, eventually saying, teach us your ways. Because what we thought was right was broken and it ruined a generation. Are you following? This is the message of Isaiah. Don't find yourself making alliances. Find yourself listening to Isaiah and trusting the Lord. So we're gonna pick up in 1424, but before we do, and here's typically what we do each week. We we leave the Isaiah artwork up during the message, and then when I go to a verse, we'll put it up on the screen so you can follow along, you can read in your Bible. But today's a little bit different because we're gonna be covering a lot of different nations. I'm gonna be covering uh, Isaiah 1424 all the way up through 20. That's like five and a half chapters. We typically read verse by verse every single one, uh, but today, just to cover the material, and a lot of it is the redundant same message. I'm gonna read a little bit and paraphrase a little bit, but we're covering so many nations. I want you to understand where these places are, because if you're anything like me, the visual side of you is like, okay, uh, when you say Moabites, where exactly are we talking about? So I put this map together. If you'll, uh, Hilary, if you'll put that up there. This is uh, the Middle Eastern region. You've got Egypt over here. Uh, You got Sinai Peninsula, you got Israel, uh, Saudi Arabia. And so I kind of color-coded where these nations are. So rather than throw the artwork up during uh, the sermon when we're not looking at the scripture, I'm gonna leave this up here so you guys can constantly have a geographical reference of where we're talking about, okay? These are the nations that we're gonna cover today. You got Judah, orange, Israel is red up in the north. Philistia is that little yellow. And then you got the Moabites, uh, Damascus. Damascus is also Syria, uh, and then you got Assyria up there in green. So, uh, so without further ado, let's get to it. Matthew, or excuse, Matthew, what am I doing? Oh, Lord. Isaiah 14, verse 24. <clears throat> the oracle concerning Assyria. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand that i will break the assyrian in my land and on my mountains trample him under foot and his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulder this is the purpose that is purpose concerning the whole earth and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations for the lord of hosts has purposed and who will annul it His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Pause right there. The first oracle of the day, Assyria. Let's go back to the map. Concerning the large, massive power structure up in the the northeast Assyria, they were the big threat of the day, the largest army, the, the best technology. To the Israelite who says, We should trust in Assyria's power. How do we get out of the mess we're in? Let's go to the people with the biggest power and let's make friends with them. And Isaiah says, don't bother going to them because God has already planned their destruction. Do not trust in the power structure of Assyria because God is going to crush their power structure and make them look like fools in front of the entire world. His hand is already outstretched against them in anger. God is going to punish the Assyrians and wipe them off the face of the planet. They will not be a people anymore, so don't trust them. Now, for those of us who have a little bit of a tender heart, and we read this and we're like, God, that doesn't seem very fair that you would do that to the Assyrians. You start to read in your Bible these situations where God decreed a specific thing, and you don't have all the information because you're not God, but you as a man or a woman take offense to the ways of God. I wanna remind you that before this oracle took place, exactly 70 years before this oracle was spoke, God sent a prophet to Assyria and asked the Assyrians to repent. This prophet's name was Jonah. And he went to the main city of Assyria called Nineveh. And he preached to the people of Assyria seventy years before this event and said, repent, because if you don't, God is gonna judge you. And the people repented. And Jonah was offended by this because he did not think that these people were worth God's mercy but he obeyed anyway after a long series of being swallowed by fish and everything. but He eventually preached and the nation repented, but the repentance didn't last long because as soon as the king died, they went back to their wicked ways. So what you're seeing here is 70 years of wickedness after they repented and turned back. They repented when the Lord said repent, but the repentance didn't stick and they eventually turned back to their witness, their their wickedness. And Isaiah is saying, don't trust the Assyrian power. Because they were offered a chance to repent. And they squandered it. So don't, don't, don't trust them. Well, who do we, we trust? Trust God. If you've got a nation who has all power, and God can wipe them off of the map just with a snap of his finger. Why would you throw your power, your trust into somebody who can be wiped out by somebody who's even stronger? Go with the stronger team. Yeah, but that team demands so much of me. That's the issue, isn't it? The Lord says, I, I'll cover you, but you, you have to surrender to me. Well, I kind of like being my own king. Well, That's not the deal, is it? The deal is you're mine and you follow me because I know what's best for you. And I know it's wise. I know it's good. And I've got a plan where I'm going to ultimately call all the nations back up into myself. Well, Lord, I, I'm, I've been making notes on that. I, I, I think I've got some thoughts that you should consider on, on how you should accomplish your plans here on the earth. I don't know if killing and getting rid of all, I don't know if this is the way to do it. Well, I realize that you think that way, but that's not part of the offer. The offer is you come and you forsake what you think and you take on what I think. That's the deal. You don't want that, then don't take it. But we don't get that. We're convinced that the Lord is going to entertain our ways of accomplishing his plans. And Isaiah is saying that's foolishness. It's ridiculous. Let's go to verse 28. This says, in the year that King Ahaz died, came this oracle. This is against Philistia. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you that the rod that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, a snake, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. Now look, serpents are bad enough. But they start spitting fire and flying I got a thing against things that fly. Like, look, I, I'm, I'm a big dude, but am, you take something like this small with wings, no, I'm out. I can't fight things that fly. So he's saying, you, you think that what you've got, it, it, it's not a big deal, but I'm, I'm telling you the thing that's coming after this thing that you thought was so bad, it's going to be even worse. Verse 30 The firstborn of the poor will graze, and the needy lie down in safety, and I will kill your root with famine, and your remnant it will slay. Wail, O gate, cry out, O city, melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you, for smoke comes out of the north, and there is no straggler in its ranks. Who, excuse me, what will one answer the messengers of the nation? The Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. Let's go back to the map. The smoke comes out of the north. What's in the north? Assyria. Philistia thought that the biggest issue that they were going to face was this king named Shalmaneser, this king of Assyria. <clears throat> and then they get word that he died. And Philistia starts rejoicing. Oh, man. Nobody could be as worse as Shalmaneser. And the prophet says, his son Sargon, the king is coming. And he's gonna be worse. You thought that the serpent was bad. This one's gonna be a flying, fiery serpent. He's gonna move faster and destroy more than you could possibly imagine. And there's gonna be smoke coming in from the north and it's gonna lay waste to your land. So to the Israelite who says, let's trust in, in the Philistines, Isaiah says the Philistines are gonna be destroyed by the Assyrians. Now why would Israel wanna trust the Philistines? Because the Philistines were known for technological advancement. They were one of the first uh, tribes in this region all right, above Judah, above Israel, above the Moabites, to discover iron. And they forged all their weapons out of iron. And so while a lot of the surrounding nations were still in the Bronze Age, Philistines were fighting with iron. And so Israel is saying, um, all right, Syria's coming. Israel's coming, Syria's coming, what do we do? How about we trust the people with the best technology? And Isaiah is saying the people with the best technology are not gonna be able to stand up against the Assyrians. They're gonna come in and they're gonna lay waste. It doesn't matter. Don't trust the world. Trust God, they are your refuge. And now we start to see those connections I was talking about earlier. The temptation in the ancient world is to trust the people with the best weapons, to trust the people with the best technology, and the temptation in the modern world for the people of God is to trust the people with the best best weapons, to to trust the people with the best strategy, to trust the people with the best technology. I was reading an article the other day uh, about um, a group, uh, a denomination, and also a group of churches who were approached by Facebook Facebook's desire was to build a platform for churches to use to reach their church members. Now we know why they're doing this. They're doing this because they've got a PR responsibility. They gotta fix the bad press they've gotten over the last few years about the, the arguments that they've had against the, the manipulation that they've had in uh, elections and the way that they've been spying on people's phones and turning the microphone on when nobody thinks that they're listening. And, and you're sitting there having a conversation with your wife, you yeah, know, we should probably like get the carpets cleaned, you know? And then like 30 minutes later, you start getting ads for every carpet cleaning service in your town. No, nobody? And so Facebook has a vested interest. We've got to fix our image. Well, one of the best ways we could do it, we go, let's go to people of faith. They're, they're nice, wholesome, happy people. And so they approach these denominations. They're like, let's build, a, let's build a platform for you to use. And they just, yeah, of course. Let's do it. This is fantastic. Now on the surface, that seems like a smart move. We want to reach more people for God. We're not going to do it the way that Jesus told us to do it, by actually going out and preaching the gospel, but we've got this new strategy, so let's give it a shot. What do you think is gonna happen in five years from now when churches are using a platform that the world built for us and suddenly they don't like our message? I mean, let's add one and one together. Do you honestly think that we can accomplish God's plans by giving the vehicle to accomplish that to the world and letting them be the gate for what we can and cannot say, knowing that the way that we see the world because of how God told us to see it is completely contrary to the way that they see the world. Do we honestly think they're gonna be good stewards of what we say through their platform or do you think that they're going to start censoring and removing and bleeping and just go ahead and telling you all together well you're, you're gonna if you want to use this platform that is very successful because it reaches billions of people you're gonna to have to change your messaging a little bit do we honestly think that's not going to happen no that's exactly what's going to happen and that's the temptation for israel Do we compromise on our faith? Do we stop trusting the Lord and give ourselves to the technology of the day to save us? Or do we as the people of God trust that the way he told us to accomplish his work is not good enough in the world we live in now? There's gotta be another vehicle that we use so we can reach an even broader audience knowing that when we sell ourselves out to that, that vehicle is gonna start telling us how we can say what we say and what we can say. You can see I'm very passionate about this. Because I'm looking at all the future I'm like, what's gonna happen in the next 10 years? And I'll be honest with you, it doesn't look pleasant. It looks a lot like Israel giving itself to foreign nations and saying, we trust you with our security. We trust you with our message. No, we don't trust you with our message. God doesn't trust you with our message and that's why he gave the message to his people to deliver not to consult with the world on how we accomplish that. Now we start getting into Isaiah chapter 15. It's a short one, one through nine. I'm not gonna read this, I'm gonna paraphrase this because he gets into another oracle. He gets into the oracle of the Moabites. Now this spans 15 and 16. But 15 introduces this concept of this nation, the Moabites, they're right here in purple. This would be uh, where Jordan, the country of Jordan is today. And to the Israelite who says, all right, well, well if we don't trust Assyria, we don't trust the Philistines, how about we trust the Moabites? How about we trust the pride of the Moabites? They've, they've, they're, they've got so much wealth, I mean, they've got plenty of money. like they, And they've got the pride to go with it. They're the kind of people, if they can accomplish anything, they're, the, they're, the, they're famous, they're the celebrity type, they've got all this money. If we want to accomplish God's plans, if we want to keep ourselves safe, let's give ourselves over to the Moabites. And Isaiah says, Assyria is coming for the Moabites too. And in chapter 15, I encourage you to go read it on your own. In chapter, It's only nine, nine verses, but in 15, he says, when Assyria comes to, comes from the Moabites, the only thing that's going to be left is not their pride, it's going to be a bunch of refugees. See Isaiah 15 tells the story of a wealthy and proud people fleeing for their lives when the Assyrians show up. These people who built massive kingdoms, had all this money, and were convinced they could buy them, buy their way out of any problem that came their way. Can't buy your way out of this. The Syrians are coming for you, and they're going to destroy you. And so Israel's like, "Well, we should trust the Moabites." And Isaiah's like, "Don't leave, don't trust them. Here's the reason why you don't trust them." because as they're leaving their town, they're gonna be carrying all the stuff that they valued their entire life in their hands, and as they're leaving, they're not even gonna be able to carry it, and so they're gonna just start leaving it on the side of the road, and if you were to go to the main city in in, in Moab, and you were to walk out of town, the city, the the streets, they're just gonna be lined with the things that the Moabites thought were so important that they spent all their money and their time on. Look at those pictures in World War II and Jews are fleeing Germany and the cities are the, the, the streets when you leave the cities. It's just lined with pianos, instruments, artwork, cars just left on the side of the road. You can't take this stuff with you. So Israel's saying, well, let's, let's trust the people with the money. Let's trust the people with the pride. Let's trust the celebrities They can get us out of this. And God's saying, don't trust them. They're gonna be stripped of everything. And while this happens, what, is the, what does the Lord say about these refugees who are fleeing for their lives? In verse 5 and 15 tells us that God's heart, he cries out for these people. He weeps over the, of the thousands of people who are lining the streets who've lost everything. But what is the biggest reason why you don't trust them? Because these Moabites, when they leave their cities, they're gonna show up at the door of Judah for help. Go to Isaiah 16, verse one. After the Assyrians come in and wipe out the Moabites, and the Moabites are running for their lives, and they lost everything. Where do they run to? They run to Judah. And they're conversing about what they're gonna do when they show up at the doors of Judah, and this is Isaiah 1. They say to themselves, send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by the way of the desert to the mount of the daughters of Zion. Send a lamb, an offering to the children of God. Like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab as the fords of Arnon. So the Moabites are scattered everywhere, but they're gonna come to the people of Judah and they're gonna bring an offering And they're going to say, give counsel, grant justice. Make your shade like night at the height of noon. Shelter the outcasts. Do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Please be a shelter to them from the destroyer when the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land. Then... A throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Now this is wild, because in the middle of verse four, Isaiah switches from what the Moabites are thinking to what God is doing on his eternal timetable. And it's easy to miss if you're not careful. And at this point, we probably should pause and say, well, okay, I'm with you, but why is it so weird? Why is prophecy so weird? When God starts talking about things he's gonna do in the future, why isn't he clear about these things? Well, there's there's one main reason. There's there's two, really. The first is so that we will trust him. If you just know what's gonna happen, that doesn't require any faith or reliance on God because you just know when you believe you don't believe. There's no component of faith. But there's another component, and Paul talks about this in the New Testament, and it's the idea of the Lord is not revealing his full plan step by step by step because he does not want the enemy to know his plan. Paul says it this way. If if the enemy had known that it was required for Jesus to die, then they would not not have allowed him to be crucified. But they didn't know the exact plan, they didn't know how this was gonna accomplish, so they thought by sending him to the cross, they were winning, not realizing that they were actually fulfilling his plan. So when we go into things that have already been accomplished, it's easy for us to understand, oh, I see what you're doing there with the suffering servant thing. (laughs) I get it, I get it. He was bruised, he was crushed, I I get that. In the first century, they didn't get that. That's the reason why Jesus is constantly saying to the disciples, hey, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem, I'm gonna die, and they're like, no, you're not. No, I I literally, this is what I have to do. No, not on my watch, I'm not letting you do that. We're reading the same text that they had But we're coming to a different conclusion. They they didn't see it at the time because there were things that were hidden for the purposes of not letting the enemy understand what's gonna happen because if they did, they would have never let Jesus go to the cross. So when we read through the prophecy in the Old Testament, what we're seeing is a similar situation. How do we know what's going to unfold in the future? How do we know what's going to happen when we talk about things like Armageddon and the second coming? There is just enough information for us to know that he is coming back and there is some understanding of what it's going to look like, but the timeline and how things are going to work, that stuff is still a mystery because if the enemy knows what he's going to do, then the enemy will change his plans. That's that strategy when it comes to war. And for some of us, you're like, and that's weird. The only reason why you think that's weird is because your view of the world is that there is God up in heaven and some angels, and there's primarily just us here on earth. But that is not the worldview of the Bible. The worldview of the Bible is that there is a cosmic war going on that you cannot see and has been going on since the day of rebellion in the garden. There are demonic forces at work over nations. There are demonic forces at work in the lives of people, poking and prodding that weak flesh that we have, manifesting and, 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 and motivating and, and tempting and pulling and pulling strings and all of this stuff. God is redeeming mankind unto himself, but he is also punishing the kingdom of darkness. And that is a big part of the plan that God has in store. Now, why am I saying all this? I'm saying this because what Isaiah is doing in chapter 16 is he starts off saying that look, do you see how these refugees are leaving their lives and they're coming to Judah for salvation in 700 BC? That is a small picture of what the entire world will look like when they forsake all of their riches and all of their wealth and all of their wisdom and all of their weapons and all of their technology and they show up at the door of our king and say, teach us your ways. Because out of the line of David is going to come a king who's better than any king who's ever lived and his name is Jesus and he's gonna rule and reign on a throne from Jerusalem and when he sets up his kingdom on earth and people truly see with their eyes and they feel in their heart and the spirit's moving what he's really offering, there is nobody that's gonna say, I'm gonna keep on trying to do my own thing. No, I see it and I'm coming to it and that Now, at at this point, we start to understand God's ultimate plan. And this is where we start cracking open the message of Isaiah. How do we sum up the message of Isaiah? This book, in just a simple few sentences. God is exposing the foolishness of this world and punishing wickedness, so that ultimately the eyes of the wicked will be open in the hopes that they will turn from their sins and come to Jesus. That's the message of Isaiah. That God's ways are to punish wickedness, to deal with sin, so that those who are in that will see the foolishness and their folly and they will turn to Jesus. And Jesus will wash away their sins forgive them and give them a new life. That's the message of Isaiah. And it was 700 years before Jesus was even born. Isaiah is looking future, so far in the future, we can't even grasp it, but this is what he's saying. In the same way that the Moabites are gonna show up and ask for help, the world is going to come to the throne and they're going to ask Jesus. Now, In verses six through 14, around verse 14, we're told that this specific event is going to take place in three years. Verse 14, and the Lord has spoken in three years, this is gonna happen. So he's saying that when when Moab arrives at Judah's door in three years from now, the reaction of all of Israel, and this is what's in this chapter, is going to be complete shock. So you're thinking, let's trust the Moabites. In three years time, you're not gonna be saying, trust, let's trust the Moabites, in three years time, you're gonna be looking at the Moabites in their tattered rags with nothing to their name, and you're gonna be looking at them and you're gonna be saying, look at how far these prideful people have fallen. They trusted their accomplishments, they trusted their celebrity status, they trusted their wealth, and now they have nothing. Why would we trust these people? God's gonna take that, all that from them. I imagine that the best way to wrap your head around this would be if you watched the Oscars. A room full of celebrities with more money than you could possibly imagine in one room on one night and in a blink of an eye, every single one of those celebrities lost everything. What would our reaction to that be? That reaction is the same reaction that Israel will have, Judah will have when the Moabites show up at the door. Let's go to Damascus in blue, verse, uh, chapter 17. <coughs> it says, an oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aroer are deserted. They will be like flocks, which will lie down and none will make them afraid. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim. That's interesting. Ephraim is in Israel. That's not in Damascus. But these two nations are being lumped together because they were in alliance, the Syro-Ephraim alliance. And so they get an oracle together. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim, the kingdoms of Damascus, The remnants of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. And in that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. And it shall be as when the reaper gathers standing grain and his arm harvests the ears. And when one gleans the ears of the grain of the valley of Rephaim, gleanings will be left in it, meaning very, very little will be left. It's kind of like when an olive tree is beaten and there's only two or three berries in the top of the highest bough. Four or five on the branches of a fruit tree declares the Lord God of Israel. So to the Israelite who says, well, let's trust Damascus. Let's trust the nation in blue. Let's let's, let's trust Damascus. Let's trust Damascus and let's trust Israel because they've already got an alliance. Isaiah says Israel and Syria will be conquered by Assyria too. Don't look to them because God is judging them. When God's done doing what he's gonna do in these nations, they're gonna look like a beaten olive tree. There's gonna be like two or three olives at the very top. Now this pruning is good because it's gonna cause the people to turn back to God. And that's what he says in verses seven and eight of 17. The pruning process will cause the people to forsake their gods and turn back to the Lord. So when we say, Lord, don't punish your people, don't shake the trees, don't shake me. When, t- when, when I'm going through something, or when I've wandered off, or when I'm wayward, don't spank me, don't shake me, don't strip me. No, that's exactly what you need. Because the one thing that a successful guy does not need is more success in his sin. It will only reinforce it and make it worse. And so what God says in my plan, my is, I'm going to strip it down to the air bones. I'm going to shake the tree. I'm going to cut the tree down. There's going to be nothing left when I'm done. So that you can't look around and say, well, look at where I'm putting my hope and my trust. All of that's gone. It's going to cause you to fix your eyes on the Lord. And he says in verse 12 through 13, look, the nations, they love roaring and making lots of noise, but they all deal in the same thing. Pride, lies, anger, betrayal, and my people don't deal in those things. My people deal in one thing, and that's trusting me. That's how we accomplish my plans. Let's go to 18. This is the oracle against Cush. 18.1, it says, ah, land of whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush. Let's go to the map real quick. Cush, the green uh, green area down there. This is Ethiopia. They're constantly referred to as a whirring people, the bees that are swirring because they're they're constantly moving around, and they're 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 people who love making alliances, and they're they're moving quick, and they're going over here, and they're they're broader, brokering deals over here. All right, let's let's go back to it. Isaiah eighteen one. Ah, the land of whirring wings is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea, in vessels of papyrus. The waters. The people who are sending ambassadors off to Assyria. <clears throat> the Lord says, go you swift messengers to a nation, tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. So God is sending out his angels as messengers to a nation tall and smooth, people feared near and far. He's talking about the Ethiopians. Tall, slender, smooth, dark skin. In verse three, all you inhabitants of the world who dwell on the earth, when a a signal is raised on the mountains, look when a trumpet is blown. Hear, for thus the Lord said to me, I will quietly look for my dwelling like a clear heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks and the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. They shall all of them be left to the birds of prey of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth, and the birds of prey will summer on them, and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide, to Mount Zion, the place the name of the Lord of hosts. So to the Israelite, he says, let's trust in the diplomacy of Cush. These people are so good at brokering deals. Let's go to them and ask them to broker a deal for us. Isaiah says the diplomacy is going to be their ruin because they're gonna go to the Assyrians and try and broker a deal. It's not gonna work. They're gonna try and broker a deal with the Egyptians. It's not gonna work. And I said that the land of Cush is the Ethiopians. They were known for their tributes and their ambassadors. This is a way of life that eventually is going to cause them to be destroyed. But verse 7 is interesting. Because the oracle against Cush, so so Israel is saying, Judah is saying, Do we trust Cush? And Israel, Isaiah is like, No, no, don't trust them. Well, but they're good at brokering deals. Don't trust them. They're gonna be, they're they're brokering deals and going to Assyria, it's gonna gonna swallow them whole, like don't even consider it. As a matter of fact, there's coming a day when one of them will come to you. They're gonna come to you and ask you to broker a deal. They're gonna come and they're not gonna pay tribute to Assyria, there's coming a day in the future where they're gonna come and pay tribute to your king in Judah. Now this is fascinating because it's another example of the way that Isaiah is playing on imagery and prophecy. He's talking about a specific moment right now in history, in the 700s, where Israel, Judah is trying to decide, do we trust Cush? And he's saying, no, don't, because they're gonna be swallowed up by the Assyrians. But then he says, look, the other reason why you don't trust them, not just because they're gonna be swallowed up by the Assyrians, but also because they're ultimately gonna come pay a tribute to you. Don't go to them when they're gonna eventually come to you. Now, for a moment, I want us to look at verse seven through kind of a prophetic lens because we're being told by Isaiah that there is coming a time when an ambassador from the people tall and smooth of Cush of Ethiopia are going to bring tribute to Yahweh and Judah. Now in your minds, we're not gonna turn there, but in your minds, I want you to jump forward in your Rolodex of the scripture you understand. I want you to jump to Acts chapter eight, verses 26 to 34. And I want you to remember a guy named Philip who was told by the Holy Spirit, I want you to go outside of Jerusalem, and there's a crossroads there, I want you to stop, and I want you to just wait. So Philip goes, and he obeys, and he stands there, and up comes this carriage, and in the carriage is a man from Ethiopia. And we're told that he has come to Jerusalem to pay tribute to their king. And he's reading Isaiah. And Philip says, hey, the Lord told me to come and talk to you. Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, I have no idea what I'm reading. How how am I supposed to understand this? And Philip explains to him what Isaiah is talking about. Preaches to him. The man gets saved, and Philip walks him down to the river and baptizes him. And we're told that as soon as he lifts him back up, that Philip was transfigured. He was teleported. He disappeared and showed up 30 miles down the road. And the Ethiopian man got up and went back to Ethiopia to preach the gospel to his people. 700 years before this happened, Isaiah is pleading with Israel and pleading with the church, hope in God, trust in God. Because the stuff he's gonna pull off to accomplish his plans is going to blow your mind. On your best day, on Michael Bay's best day, he couldn't write this into a script. Let's go to Isaiah 19.1. <clears throat> An oracle concerning Egypt Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt with them. Just pause right there, because what he's saying is to the Israelite who says, all right, if all these nations are not going to work, how about we go to Egypt? How about we trust in the gods of Egypt? Isaiah says, God is gonna humiliate the gods of Egypt. Don't trust them. But he doesn't stop there because in verses two through 15, he also says that God is going to humiliate the abundance that Egypt has that comes from the Nile. He's going to humiliate the wisdom and knowledge that they've always had because they're one of the oldest nations. And he's going to humiliate their dynasty of leaders. And when God is finished dealing with Egypt, they will look like a third world country. That's right now. There was a time when Egypt was an America across the globe and Egypt now is barely getting by. Why are you doing this, Lord? To bring them to repentance. Verses 16 through 25 of 19, the rest of the chapter, it says all this humiliation and judgment will result in one thing, the nations of the earth will repent and turn to Jesus. So don't trust the nations because their destiny is humiliation and repentance. And Isaiah drives home that one point in chapter 20. The future of the nations is humiliation. So do not trust the nation. You don't, you're not hearing me, people. So I'm gonna do something that's gonna blow your mind so that you can really see and hear what I'm saying. Go to Isaiah 20, verse one. In the year that the commander in chief who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod, Ashdod's in Philistia, and fought against it and captured it. Oh, now Philistia's fallen just like Isaiah said it would. At that time, the Lord spoke to Isaiah, the son of Amos, says, <clears throat> go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so walking around naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, as my servant Isaiah walked naked and barefoot for three years, As a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and of of Egypt their boast. And the inhabitants of the coastland will say in that day, behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and we, how are we going to escape? So what's happening? It's exactly what you think is happening. In order to drive home his point, Isaiah walked around for three years completely naked because the people are not hearing the words. Well, what about this? Should we trust this? No, don't trust this. Because if you trust this, you're going to end up like these people. You don't believe me? Take it in, baby. Take all of it in. This is what is going to befall these people. And this, in this day, we're like, ah, we went a little far. How far do we need to go to actually let the people wake up? Because I was having a conversation with Chad and Christy about this last night. There is a, a, a dangerous lack among the people of God to draw a line in the sand and say, I've had enough. Amen. And when I say I had enough, I don't mean I've had enough in your life. I mean there's a severe lack in the people of God to draw a line in the sand and say, I've had enough of me. I've had enough of my ways. I've had enough of trying to work things so that I get what I want out of the deal. I am now coming to a place when I'm confronted with scripture that the God of the universe has a plan and I can either one, get on board with that plan and his wants and desires, or I can be against him and continue to want my wants and desires. There is no middle ground. Those are the only two options. You either surrender it all and you get on team Jesus or you keep living like the world at various degrees, but you are an enemy to God. Those are the only two choices. And Isaiah lived his life for three years completely naked to drive home that point. So starting next week, no, I'm kidding, I'm not going. There's like a line and I almost jumped over it. We... Look, we covered a lot of oracles today, and my goal in all of these oracles is for you to grasp the tension that the prophet is communicating. The idea that the people of God already have a hope, they already have someone to trust, they already have an identity. You don't go to the world for an identity. You don't go to the world for trust or hope. You don't go to the world so that they can save you or provide ways to accomplish God's plans. But just because we know that we already have an identity doesn't mean we're immune to the temptation that it, we may find a better one out there. Are you, are you following? The idea that we, okay, well, God give, gives us an identity, and gives us security, and, and we, we can trust him, but that doesn't mean that the temptation from the enemy stops knocking or whispering, yeah, but 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 you could be like this. They've got this over here. You could try this out. So we need regular reminding, constant reminders that our identity is in Christ, that we don't need to fear the things of this world, that God is our refuge and our strength, that the nations will eventually turn to God and Jesus will rule the world. So here's the goal for today and here's how we're gonna close. The temptation for Israel was to turn to the world for answers to their problems. And the temptation for the church is to turn to the world or to look at each other or to elevate leaders and say, we're paying you for this, solve our problems. But these are problems that only the Lord can solve. So as we close today, this is the assessment that we have to take of our own soul. And I said that the oracles are an exercise in learning how to trust God, but also an exercise in learning how to grow in holiness. Because there is a temptation in our soul to want to trust power and pride and unholy compromise and idols and abundance and knowledge and leaders instead of trusting him. And I don't know where you fall across that spectrum, but all of us fall somewhere. All of us are predispositioned to trip over the same thing until God's grace saves us from that. So in the middle of your transformation right now, the question I have as we leave today and about to take communion is this, where are you making foreign alliances with power or pride or compromise or idols or abundance or money or knowledge or leaders?